Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Barbarians at the Gate, The Poison Pill, and multi-billion dollar proxy fights. For many, these terms conjure up images from the 80s of investment bankers in fat pinstripe suits. But what's changed when it comes to hostile takeovers? And what effect has the law had when it comes to curbing corporate raiders? Hello and welcome to Talks on Law at the Cutting Edge of Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Our guest today is John Morley, professor at Yale Law School. Welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we're talking about hostile takeovers, but for those of us who aren't uh, M&A attorneys, what are we talking about when it comes to hostile versus a normal M&A deal? M&A deals tend to fall into two classes, hostile on the one hand and friendly on the other. A hostile deal is basically a deal that isn't invited or cooperated with by the board of directors of a given company. And are these common? Hostile takeovers are relatively uncommon in the United States. They were most common back in the 1980s when somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of all takeovers of public companies were hostile. That declined over the course of the 1980s and 90s and 2000s. Recently, it's ticked back up slightly. In 2014, about 7% of all deals were hostile, which is much higher than it had been in the past. So most deals, it turns out, are friendly. Talking about hostile deals, how does it actually happen? How does a, an outsider find, its, find him or herself in control of a company? A common way to take over a company is to use what's called a two-step takeover process. Initially, the person trying to take over the company will do what's called a tender offer. The person seeking to do the takeover will offer to buy some percentage of the stock outstanding. He'll offer to buy 51%, for instance, of all of the stock outstanding. Then, in the second step of the hostile takeover process, he will implement what's called a squeeze-out or a freeze-out or a cash-out merger in which the, the acquirer uses the control he's just gained, let's say he took 51% of the shares, to vote in favor of a merger with a company that he already controls. Under most states' corporate law, I think maybe every state's corporate law, you can use a merger to force out the minority shareholders at a price that you specify. So, for example, I might make an offer for 51% of the company's shares at $100 a share, and then after gaining 51%, I would pay $100 in cash to each of the remaining shareholders and in so doing make myself the exclusive controller of the company. Now the payout has to be a reasonable number. It has to be a real number valuing the company. This is one of the most controversial and difficult areas of M&A law. There's a variety of subtle judicial and statutory doctrines that control exactly how much this acquirer has to pay. Usually in the first step, when the acquirer is just doing a tender offer, the acquirer can offer more or less however much it wants. The idea being, look, if people don't want to sell, they don't have to sell. But if 51% of the shareholders are willing to tender into this tender offer and sell their shares at a given price, then usually it's enough for that controller to then squeeze out the remaining shareholders at the same price. It used to be that in the past, people would do something especially devious. They would offer $100 a share in the tender offer and implicitly or explicitly threaten that in the second step, when they squeezed out the minority, they would only pay 
$85 a share. This would create powerful incentives to tender into the initial tender offer, even if the price wasn't very high. One of the developments in the 1980s was to try to diminish this kind of gamesmanship through a, a, a number of judicial and statutory doctrines. So in the process, are the investors attempting to vote their way into control? Not in the two-step process that I just described to you. First, they acquire a controlling stake, and then after doing so, use that controlling stake to vote for this merger that will give them total control. But sometimes they just start by doing what's called a proxy fight. In the United States, share ownership tends to be so widely dispersed that not every shareholder can show up at a given meeting. You know, just Apple, for example, might have 2 million or 3 million, 10 million shareholders, I don't know how many. But not all of them are going to show up in Cupertino, California, and actually cast their votes and punch the chads through the ballots or whatever it is. So instead, in the United States, we use what are called proxies for shareholder voting, in which Apple or somebody seeking to take over control of Apple will send out mailings by email or even by snail mail to each of the various shareholders and ask for the authority to vote their shares on their behalf. And then the people seeking this authority will then use it to vote one way or another. One way to take over a company, therefore, is to kind of manipulate this proxy voting process. Basically, you can run a campaign in which you send ballots to people asking for proxy authority to vote for yourself as a director of the company. If you do this well enough, you can take control of the majority of the board of directors and in so doing gain control of the company even without necessarily owning a majority of the shares. So this would be going out to even the smallest owners. It, let's say I own five or six shares of Apple. I may get a, a mailing asking for my proxy. Yeah, and there are firms, there are professionals that specialize in this business who will send you out mailings multiple times. Sometimes this can get sort of silly. In an effort to... Uh, to to, to get proxy authority, sometimes you'll have two sides of the same proxy battle, each mailing proxies to the same shareholder. And the shareholder, not really understanding what's happening, will sign each one of them. Uh, and so it can be unclear just who has received the shareholder's proxy authority. Uh, often the doctrine is simply that whichever ballot the shareholder signed last is the one that ends up being valid. So you'll get people sending out mass mailings on the very last possible date. And you may have already signed one, and they're sending you another. That's right. And you just look at it and think, what is this? I don't really know. Grumble, grumble. You sign it and then mail it back in. That's a brief explanation of how a hostile takeover can take place. But there are provisions, there are ways for a corporation to prevent it. Yes. A lot of lawyers get paid a lot of money to stop companies from getting taken over. Companies don't want to be taken over for a number of reasons. The main one is just that once two companies have combined into one, there's no longer a need for two groups of senior leaders. You don't need two CEOs, and you don't need two boards of directors, which means that the CEO and the board of directors of one company are going to lose their jobs. Naturally, these people want to hang on to their jobs, and so they have powerful, powerful incentives to fight takeovers. So starting in the 1980s, well, or at least accelerating in the 1980s, and then continuing over the past 20 years or so, Lawyers have become extremely inventive about imagining ways to stop companies from being taken over. We'll go through some of the actual mechanisms, but maybe you can rattle off a few. There are things like the poison pill, staggered boards. You can manipulate the date of proxy votes. This is a so-called uh, Pac-Man defense. Uh, there are a variety of colorfully named defenses that people have used over the years. 
There are a few laws that are relevant when we're talking about anti-takeover measures. What are those? A number of states have enacted provisions in their corporation statutes that make it difficult for acquirers to take over companies. A good example would be the Maryland Control Share Acquisition Act, which says that if an acquirer doesn't get permission from a company's board of directors or shareholders in advance, then the acquirer can't vote more than 15% of the company's total outstanding shares. So if I acquire, say, 35% of a company's shares without getting permission, for example, I can only vote a portion of those, up to 15%, and I can't vote the remaining 20. Is this in an effort to pander to companies to reincorporate in Maryland? I think it is. Uh, we can debate whether or not that pandering is a good thing or a bad thing, but unambiguously this serves the interests of the managers, the existing managers of companies. So why don't we go through and look at some of the anti-takeover provisions that can be incorporated into the, the governing documents of the companies. The poison pill, probably the most famous. The poison pill is tremendously famous. Uh, the poison pill was invented in the 1980s by a man named Marty Lipton, who's one of the name partners at the law firm Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz. Wachtell basically made itself famous and very, very rich in the 1980s and 1990s, defending companies against hostile takeovers. And one of the firm's greatest inventions was the poison pill. The poison pill is so named because it's like the cyanide pill that the pilots of U-2 fighters were supposed to take if their plane went down. So before you can get the secret information out of me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end myself. That's right, I'm gonna take the cyanide pill and you'll never get anything out of me. Put differently, it's a kind of scorched earth strategy. Uh, a poison pill is a little complicated, but, uh, but it works very effectively. The basic idea is this. A company puts a provision in its governing documents that says that the board of directors can issue a form of preferred stock, giving the existing stockholders the right to purchase stock at a discounted price upon the happening of a certain event. And the event is the acquisition of a certain number of shares by an acquirer. So to use a concrete example, let's say that the, the pill's trigger point is 15%. If I acquire 17% of the company's shares, then all of the existing stockholders other than myself will get the right to purchase new shares at some discounted price sometimes for nothing at all, sometimes for zero dollars. Which will make the ultimate acquisition a lot more expensive. Yes, because if everybody else, let's say that a company has 100 shares outstanding, and I have just acquired 15 of them, and in so doing, I've triggered a poison pill. Let's say that the remaining shareholders all get another 100 shares for free. Well, now all of a sudden, instead of owning 15% of the company, I own 7.5%, that is to say 15 shares out of 200 total shares outstanding. And moreover, because all of these existing stockholders have received their shares for nothing, the value of my shares has been effectively deflated. And then when you hit the 15% again, the poison pill can be re-triggered? There's some dispute about this. The reason it's uncertain is that poison pills vary. Some poison pills might be re-triggered, some might not. Additionally, poison pills have proven so effective that nobody's ever really triggered one twice. 
So we don't really know for sure what would happen. But poison pills are highly effective because they make it essentially impossible for anyone to acquire more than a certain number of shares. There are very smart lawyers involved in drafting the poison pill. There have been some very creative lawyers who've been involved in trying to get around them. Yes, I spent a lot of time in my classes at Yale Law School teaching people both how to set these things up and how to get around them. And those graduates go on to get paid a lot of money to do precisely this. So poison pills have one crucial weakness, which is that if you gain control of the board of directors, you can remove it. So if I run a proxy contest and I get my candidates on the board of directors before I trigger the poison pill, then they can vote to remove the poison pill and pave the way for me to acquire a lot of shares. Crucially, I have to get control of the board of directors before I actually trigger the pill. Because once the shares, once the, once the rights to acquire shares are out there in the hands of shareholders and once they've been triggered, the board can't unilaterally take them back. So I have to pull these things before uh, I actually acquire a certain number of shares. That's important because it's often difficult to win a proxy fight if I can't acquire more than a certain number of shares. If I can't acquire them, then I can't guarantee how they're going to vote. Because of the poison pill, the way to a hostile takeover now is exclusively uh, via the board. Yeah, the path is exclusively through the board. And I should say that the poison pill is especially vicious because every company in the United States has one implicitly, even if it doesn't have one. What do you mean? A company can basically adopt a poison pill overnight, or really in a matter of minutes. All that has to happen is the board of directors resolves to do the sorts of things that would involve the adoption of a poison pill. So even if a company doesn't have a poison pill right now, it could have one 10 minutes from now by just getting on the phone and calling its lawyers. So as a practical matter, every single company in the United States effectively has one. So it's a tool in the arsenal of the company, even if it's not in the bylaws or the, the governing documents. Yes, it could be, it could, it could be used any time. Now there are defenses for the board itself. You mentioned a staggered board. Yes, and staggered boards are in a sense even more important than poison pills because they prevent people from running proxy contests. A staggered board works in essence like the United States Senate. In the United States Senate, senators serve for six years, but we nevertheless have elections every two years. The reason is that only one-third of the senators are up for election every year. A staggered board can work the same way. Under the law of Delaware, which is the most common jurisdiction for large companies in the United States to incorporate, a board can be divided into as many as three classes, only one of which is up for election each year. What this means is that even if I gain the proxy authority of more than 51% of the shares, even if I own more than 51% of the shares, I can only get one-third of the directors in the first year. So I effectively have to wait two years to get control of the board of directors. So this takes away speed from, it, the, from the tools of a hostile takeover? Yes, um, it takes away speed. It also gives the board, the existing board, the opportunity to sabotage the company in the meantime, or to do something else that might diminish my control of the company. Let's say, for instance, that I acquire 30% of the shares and get proxy authority for another 21%. Well, if, if I don't have control of the board, then the board can just go out and do something crazy like issue a bunch more shares to some friendly person who's going to support the board and, and, and thereby diminish my ownership stake. 
Or they could even just hand out assets. They could do any number of things that would be detrimental to my interests. They could purchase another company. They could purchase another company. They could set the company's factories on fire, for all we know. There's certainly some fiduciary duty uh, errors there. But, but even within the bounds of fiduciary duties, there's a lot that a board of directors can do. You mentioned you teach your students how to get around the poison pill. How do we get around the staggered board? The staggered board is much harder to get around, and this is what makes it such an important anti-takeover defense. If the staggered board appears in, if the provisions that cause the board to be staggered appear in the company's bylaws, then technically speaking, the shareholders have the right to change it. So you can change it through a proxy contest. If the staggering provision appears in the Certificate of Incorporation, which is the company's ultimate governing document, then the shareholders can't change it unless the board agrees to change it as well. Which, in, in the case of a hostile takeover, the board's not on your side. That's right, and there's no way to gain control of the board because it's staggered. So ultimately, the way people get around staggered boards is simply to shame them. Literally, uh, an acquirer will just make a very high offering price in a tender offer and call up the Wall Street Journal and say, these guys are terrible. They're standing in between the shareholders and a lot of money. What do they think they're doing? This is horrible. That's how you get around a staggered board. And frankly, often it works. There's just too much pressure on management to cave. That's right. Nobody wants to be a villain. And if I'm a director at a company that's being offered a lot of money by an acquirer, at some point, the hit to my reputation will be too much and, I'm, and I'll give in. We talked about poison pills, staggered boards. How about golden parachutes? Golden parachutes discourage takeovers by forcing an acquirer to pay an executive or the board of directors or somebody else a whole lot of money if the corporation changes control. Basically, it's called a golden parachute because it allows the current CEO to parachute after he jumps the business uh, and to have his parachute being made of extremely valuable materials. So a golden parachute would prototypically give the CEO $100 million, right? some outrageous amount of money, if control of the company changes hands. How could a CEO justify that? How could a CEO not be in breach of his fiduciary duty by even drafting that language? A CEO doesn't really have a fiduciary duty with regard to his own compensation. And the reason is that when he negotiates for his compensation, he's negotiating with the company, in theory at least, at arm's length, right? He can say, look, if you don't want to pay me this amount of money, then I'll walk away. And CEOs make this argument by saying, CEOs also make an argument where they say, look, if this company changes hands, I'm going to be out of a job. I'm going to be 60-something years old. I will have been essentially fired from my previous job. I'm not going to be able to find future employment, at least not on desirable terms. So if I'm going to get canned, I need to be compensated for that. Frankly, I find that argument a little rich. We're talking about people who are already making tens of millions of dollars a year sometimes. I think the better argument in favor of a golden parachute is that sometimes it can actually become a pro-takeover rather than an anti-takeover device. Because it makes the CEO more excited about the idea of a takeover. Yeah, if, he's gonna, if he knows he's gonna get fired and there'll be nothing in it for him, why would he facilitate a takeover? But if there's 100 million bucks, he might very well cooperate. It's a little bit like, uh, like when a dictator is trying to leave some country during a revolution. Sometimes it's in the interest of everybody for the Swiss to take him in. That's or the Saudis. It, or the Saudis, that's right. So that's the golden parachute is the Switzerland of, of the hostile takeover. In a sense, yeah, yeah, it is. 
So in that regard, uh, Golden Parachute can be both an anti-takeover and a, an encouragement for a friendly takeover. Yeah, yeah, it can align everybody's interests. I mean, look, some people would find it unjust that the CEO gets to walk away with a lot of money after his company's just been taken over, but it ultimately facilitates what are sometimes efficient transfers of control. Maybe we should talk for a minute about green mail. Right, all of these anti-takeover defenses have very colorful names. Green mail is sort of like blackmail. The basic idea is that a, an acquirer or at least some rowdy shareholder shows up at your door and says, give me X, Y, or Z, uh, or else I'm going to keep creating problems. So then the company simply pays the shareholder off. The company can pay the shareholder off in a variety of ways. It can buy back the shareholder's stock at a particular price, for example. It can pay A price that could be above what it's being publicly traded? Yeah, yeah, it can be above what it's being publicly traded at. There are some judicial doctrines that regulate this. Basically, the board has to make this decision independent of the influence of this raucous shareholder. But it, but, but it can happen. Sometimes also the shareholder will demand a dividend to be paid to all shareholders. There are various things, and the, the, the exact price being paid to make the shareholder go away can vary. One of the shareholders who's been accused of doing this most often is Carl Icahn, whose name is on a stadium here in New York. Uh, Icahn has a pattern of showing up at companies, acquiring a relatively small number of shares, but larger than any other shareholder, 5%, 7%, and then creating problems for the existing company, or for the existing CEO, until the CEO agrees to pay Icon to go away in some fashion. One of the more unusual names uh, when it comes to anti-takeover is, is the macaroni or Pac-Man defense. Right, so the macaroni defense is so named because uh, in the same way that a piece of macaroni will swell in a pot of boiling water until it becomes disgustingly gross, likewise, a company can build into its bonds certain provisions that hurt the shareholders in the case of an acquisition. For example, a company can say, can take out debt, and in its agreement with, uh, with the people who lend it money, whether they're bondholders or a bank, it can say, if control of the company changes hands, we owe you a certain huge chunk of money. And that will, that will weaken the company and make it less attractive to a stockholder. Another defense is the so-called Pac-Man defense. The Pac-Man defense is so named because it allows an, a, a target to turn around and acquire the acquirer. In the game Pac-Man, Pac-Man can swallow one of those little fruits and then turn around and eat the ghosts. Well, likewise, if I'm being the subject of a, if I'm the target of an acquisition, I can turn around and try to acquire the people who are trying to acquire me, and in so doing, maintain control of the newly combined company. So the, the target then becomes the, uh, the acquirer. That's right. The, hunter becomes, the hunted becomes the hunter. How much of this is actual law, or is it just attorneys being a little creative in drafting the bylaws and provisions? It's mostly attorneys being creative, frankly. Most of these different defenses that we've talked about come from individual companies choosing to opt into them. They choose to build these things into their certificates of incorporation and bylaws. Of course, all of these things ultimately have to be accepted by a court. And there was some question in particular about poison pills, whether or not the Delaware courts would accept those things. But ultimately it did. But with some limitations? With some limitations, yes. So in the 1980s, there were a series of judicial developments in Delaware, which we spend a lot of time talking about in my class, that try to constrain exactly when companies can use these anti-takeover defenses. Basically, there has to be a real threat. 
And the company's response has to be proportional to that threat. As you might imagine, these terms are quite vague. And the court had to give them, the, the Supreme Court of Delaware had to give them substance over time as it assessed individual anti-takeover defenses. And as a practical matter, frankly, the restrictions aren't very meaningful anymore. You can do basically whatever you want, or at least enough to completely prevent yourself from being taken over. In particular, the combination of a staggered board and a poison pill, which is virtually unbeatable, at least through formal mechanisms, has now been more or less completely approved by the Delaware courts. Why would a company want this? Why would this be a healthy form of corporate governance? You know, most corporate lawyers, when I talk to practitioners of corporate law, they reverse the question and say, why wouldn't a company want this? Their argument is that when a board has these hostile takeover defenses built in, the board is in a much stronger bargaining position with regard to people who are trying to take it over. Remember that if somebody first does a tender offer at a particular price and then a merger at another price, they can essentially force out a group of shareholders who thinks the company is worth more than they're being paid for their shares. I can squeeze out shareholders at $100 even when those shareholders believe their shares are worth 110 And so people who defend these, these anti-takeover devices say, well, look, a board needs to be able to say, no, we're not being taken over unless you agree to pay more money. Uh, and in so doing, extract higher prices. That's, I think, the best argument. Another argument is that hostile takeovers are bad for people other than the shareholders. Classic example would be a situation where somebody comes in and takes over a company and then fires all the workers from a particular division. This was more common in the 1980s than it is now. T. Boone Pickens, who's now kind of resurfaced as this advocate for natural gas and climate change, he made his wealth in the 1980s as a takeover artist. And one of the things that he threatened to do when he took over oil companies was to close down the companies and simply sell off their holdings, causing a lot of people to lose their jobs in the process. That's sometimes a reason why management may want to hold firm, stick to the loyalty of their employees, even in the face of a lucrative offer. Yeah, here's another example, the Hershey Corporation. Many people don't realize that Hershey is actually majority owned by a tiny trust in the town of Hershey, Pennsylvania. This trust is tiny in the sense that it benefits a little school for orphans in the town of Hershey, Hershey, Pennsylvania. It's huge, however, in the sense that it has billions of dollars worth of Hershey Company stock. This company tried to sell itself in a friendly takeover, actually, uh, but the state of Pennsylvania and a group of lobbyists stepped in because they were terrified about how this takeover would have affected the town of Hershey, Pennsylvania. They effectively stopped the takeover from happening so that this massive global corporation is now run for the benefit of this tiny school for orphans in Hershey, Wait, Pennsylvania. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. seriously, Hershey Corp uh, is majority owned by this tiny school in Hershey, Pennsylvania. How could a tiny school possibly uh, need that kind of resources? That's a great question, and frankly, this is actually bad for the school. The school would be better off holding a diversified portfolio of assets, right? It's got several billion dollars in this endowment. And what it ought to do is invest that money widely in the, in, in the, the S&P 500, a wide array of stocks on the stock exchange. Because right now, what the, that trust is extremely exposed to, the, to fluctuations in the value of Hershey Company stock. If there was some problem with, at Hershey, the school would lose huge amounts of money. The trustees of that trust, in effect, control the corporation? Yes, effectively. Yeah, because they own 
such a large. So this is a, a mechanism by which certain family members can maintain control over the company. That's one possible outcome. Milton Hershey genuinely wanted to benefit this school, but also often when a company is founded by some charismatic figure like Milton Hershey, this charismatic figure at the time of his death will give a few shares to his family and then put a large number of shares in a trust, which is effectively controlled by the family. This will get him the tax benefits of making a charitable contribution but nevertheless it would allow his family to remain atop the corporation in terms of control. This is much more common in Europe and Asia than it is in the United States. We have tax policies that discourage this, but nevertheless uh, it has an important, uh, important consequence for the control of America's industrial companies. All right, let's take a quick break for the MCLE CLE code. For those of you who are listening for California Attorney MCLE credit, the code for this interview is 070829. And now back to John Morley. One other way that management or large shareholders tend to control, regardless of their, of their ownership share-wise, is by creating numerous sets of shares, different classes. Yeah. A couple recent and very good examples are Google and Facebook. So I believe that the, that the founders of Google own shares that have about 10 times as many votes per share as the general public. So a concentrated power. Yes. So each of their shares entitles them to the same amount of money as the public's shares, but nevertheless they get 10 times as many votes as the public. The public, I think, agrees to this for a number of reasons. One possibility is that maybe they get their shares at a lower price than they would have if they were getting a larger proportionate voting power. Or maybe they just get access to the shares. In the case of Facebook, some early investors were just excited to be able to invest. That's right. And, 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 and Mark Zuckerberg could say to the world, look, if you don't want to invest in my terms, nobody's holding a gun to your head, Here are the, here's the deal, take it or leave it. And a lot of people chose to take it. Maybe Mark Zuckerberg could have gotten more money for those shares if he'd been willing to give away greater voting control. But, you know, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, um, you have more money than you know what to do with. What you really want is the kind of status and power that comes from controlling a global corporation like Facebook. And the way you do that is by creating two classes of shares. So with Google and Facebook, you have separate classes that in a sense have a highly concentrated voting power. Could this be a good thing? It could. The basic problem of governance in American public companies is that the shareholders are widely diffuse. That is, lots of people own small numbers of shares. And what this means is, is that basically everybody is rationally apathetic. That is to say, they feel like, look, if I informed myself about how this company was being run and spent some time voting, I might generate some benefit, but I would only enjoy a very small portion of that benefit because I only own one one millionth of the company's shares, for example. And so people rationally choose not to care. One way to address this problem is to have a controlling stockholder who owns a large number of shares and for whom the cost of exercising control is very low. This person might actually get some serious benefit from really thinking about the management of the company. And if the person has a lot of voting rights, this person can 
can beneficially manage the company without, without spending a lot of his or her own resources. Basically, the idea is this. If Mark Zuckerberg has a lot of voting power, maybe I trust Mark Zuckerberg more than I trust Carl Icahn or somebody else, or certainly more than I trust the general public. Having Mark Zuckerberg at the helm ensures that somebody I know will manage the company in a way that I can predict and that I will probably like. So in this case, when you're essentially giving control to an individual or a group of individuals, those shares can then change if they're no longer in their leadership position. For example, if Mark Zuckerberg left, his shares, I'm not sure what his shares say, but they may convert to another kind of, of less voting shares. Yes, American corporate law is highly flexible, so people can design these different classes of shares in whatever flavors they like, and, and they certainly could do that. We talked about staggered board, poison pill, different voting classes. American corporations have a lot of tools in their arsenal to protect themselves from hostile takeovers. The question is, is this a good thing? There's a big debate about this, as you might imagine. The people who say it's a good thing say that it's important for companies to be operated stably and reliably over time. It's important to protect workers who might be fired in hostile takeovers. And it's important to prevent uh, you know, brash young Turks from coming in and taking big companies and tugging them around and doing crazy things with them. The people who say that these anti-takeover defenses are bad say, look, the people who are willing to pay most for a company's shares ought to be able to control it. But by allowing companies to be managed by the people who can manage them most efficiently will create the greatest amount of value. And in particular, the people who make this argument say, look, the managers of companies have such powerful incentives to hang on to their jobs that we need to have some way for shareholders to hold them accountable, and the market for hostile takeovers is one such way. The difficulty in deciding which side of this debate is right is that hostile takeovers and the defenses that prevent hostile takeovers are very difficult to study statistically. The basic problem is that when a company adopts a hostile takeover defense, we don't really know statistically, we can't really study statistically what the effect of that adoption was because we can't sort out the effect of the adoption from other things. If a company adopts a staggered board, for example, and the, the company's stock price goes up or its performance improves, is that because of the staggered board or because of some other set of factors that motivated the company? Millions to of variables that affect companies every day. That's right. Economists call this a problem of endogeneity, or colloquially, we just think of it as the, 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 the way that causation uh, and correlation can sometimes get conflated. So these things have proven to be very, very difficult to study. It hasn't stopped people from spending huge amounts of time and effort trying to study them. But like yourself. Like myself, <laughs> that's right. I have, some, I have a paper I'm working on right now about these kinds of topics, but, but it's proven to be very difficult to reach a definite resolution about them. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.